As the protests over police racism and brutality rumbled across European cities, some activists targeted their own country's colonial history. In Belgium, demonstrators spray-painted a statue of King Leopold II, while in the UK, a statue of 17th-century slave trader Edward Colston was toppled and thrown into a river. In the struggle for decolonization, colonial symbols such as colonial statues, flags, and names of public infrastructure are often the first to be confronted or deconstructed after a conflict between oppressed and oppressors. And while the deconstruction and contextualization of colonial symbols are noteworthy, um, indispensable, and vital even to the larger cause, it's also essential to take decolonization of our society further than just its surface. Because over and above all, reflecting on the ideas of our cultural archive can take attempts on decolonization to broader social change, of which the impact goes way deeper than um, surface level. What we try to do in this episode is we wish to dig deeper in the university cultural archive, by trying to understand how colonial ideas are reproduced in education and how this reproduction can be combated. We are Lien Stegt and Ellen van der Bulke, two sociology master students at Ghent University in Belgium. In this first episode of the Decolonizing the University podcast, we want to challenge listeners to think about decolonizing the curriculum. This episode will be divided in two parts. For these two parts, we welcome two guest speakers. In the first part, you will be hearing Ellen interviewing Professor Azuma Dennis, who is a senior lecturer and program director for professional doctorates at the Open University in England. In the second part, you will be hearing a conversation between Lien, which is me, and assistant professor Kuhn Borgaert, lecturer at the Department of Conflict and Development Studies of Ghent University. So, in the first part, which is this part, Alan invites Professor Azuma Dennis to talk about her ideas about decolonization of the university. Professor Dennis is specialized in higher education and wrote the chapter Decolonizing Education, a pedagogic intervention in the book Decolonizing the University. Professor Azuma will explain the reflections that she has made around decolonizing the curriculum in higher education. The first theme in this episode is what decolonization of the curriculum signifies. This is followed by placing the concepts positioning and positionality in relation to colonization and decolonization, and explaining their importance for the decolonization of the curriculum. Furthermore, Professor Azuma Dennis gives advice for other lecturers on how they can decolonize their own curriculum. This last segment forms a base for the second part of this episode. Um, so I want to start with thanking you already for being here and start with a simple introduction of, of the team. What does decolonization of the curriculum entail in your perspective and why is it needed according to you? Well, n nice to be here and um, it's nice to meet you and get a chance to um, talk about a subject that we are both interested in. 
I, I, I accept that there are lots of different definitions of uh, decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and you can have very narrow definitions, which really mean just looking at what things are on your curriculum and how much do they uh, reflect the kind of global, international, post-colonial world that we live in. So who are the writers? I mean, I, I, I teach, I suppose my subject is education, um, but it falls more in the sort of the sociology, the humanities, the arts, that side of things. So at the narrowest, it would mean... Are there international writers? Are there black writers, um, Indian writers, African writers? Um, and are there writers who reflect that perspective on the world? Um, are those writers there on the, the curriculum that you're uh, delivering? But you can also think about decolonizing curriculum in much broader terms. So you would not just think about who appears on your curriculum and what subjects appear on your curriculum, but what are the kind of assumptions that sit beneath uh, the way you teach? Um, what are the kind of pedagogic relationships that you establish with the students in your class? And to what extent is uh, colonialism and its legacies and its afterlives, to what extent are they uh, treated as legitimate subjects for exploration within your curriculum? So I think there are narrow definitions uh, which look at week one, week two, week three, week four, and there are much broader definitions that look at week one, week two, week three, week four, but also look at the, the context within which this teaching takes place. I say it's important because I think that we we can all mess around and all have deep discussions about the meaning of truth, but I think we all, I, I work the assumption that we all have a commitment to having a, a, an accurate and honest view of the world. I say this from the point of view of the UK, but I think it's a, a commitment to really understanding the world and the shape of the world and how the world comes to be in, in the way that it is uh, that makes it uh, a, an important uh, an important subject. Um, social justice and equity would be the stance there. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that revision of the curriculum in that way would have like also an impact on decolonization of the whole institute of, of the university? Yes, I do. Uh, in as much as I think it is part of a, a of a process, but I think that I think if the institution, starting if you like with the curriculum, even in its narrower sense, places colonialism um, as a legitimate subject for exploration, it's taught and it's talked about and it is understood, and if you like, they begin to make moves towards reparations, for instance, I think that that's quite a profound move. I, I, I certainly think that the bigger picture, the broader picture, um, thinking about what it means to decolonize institutions is not possible, it's not conceivable without these smaller uh, pictures mm -hmm. being part of it, um, and that the two are related to each other. Um, and I think that it's valuable to think about quick wins and to think about what we can do. Uh, what I mean is I prefer the bigger picture, but I yeah. recognize the limitations of yeah. power that an individual might have. In the curriculum, there is some knowledge as, as basic knowledge. 
And why is that, according to you, seen as a kind of knowledge that's so much more important than all the other kinds of knowledge? I think that what we take as uh, basic knowledge becomes basic knowledge because, you know, there are powerful people who can package it and present it and tell us it is knowledge. Mm -hmm. But when you begin to look at it, even uh, in a very superficial level, you find that it's uh, sanitized. It's um, there are too many exclusions there. And it presents a version of the world which belies the world, belies the nature of that world. And, you know, like a lot of people who grew, you know, who grew up, grew up in the UK. um, I did, uh, for example, uh, A-level history uh, when I was at school many years ago. And um, we did the age of reconnaissance and the conquistadores. And, you know, we learned about Henry the Navigator and what kind of clothes he wore and what he ate for dinner. Uh, What we never learnt during this entire uh, A-level was what happened to the First Nation people who were in the countries he presumably discovered. I mean, I'm still shocked when I think about that. So this A-level, which I took, and which I'm glad to say I failed, presented me with a degree of knowledge, but that knowledge managed to exclude a you know such a, a a a vast important aspect of what happened within this encounter between you know the west and the the rest of the world i think what counts as knowledge is debatable what counts as knowledge is d- determined by power and by politics and so i think that we have to have ideas of knowledge which are more equitable which look at different perspectives and which at least manage to convey the facts of the matter, uh, the, the facts of the matter. And the fact of the matter is that there are several different ways of looking at the world and the kind of superiority we offer to Western ways are not deserved, are not intrinsic, are not inevitable and are not going to persist without limitation forever. Yes, yes. So how do you think the cycle can be broken? Like you already mentioned power and and power structures. So how do you think that reproduction can can be broken? Well, I I, I, I certainly think that there is uh, enough scholarship and discussion around these issues that anybody and any institution that has a genuine interest in them can very quickly and very easily pursue them. You know, there are numerous courses, open learn courses, future learn courses on decolonizing the curriculum, what it means. There are books, there's research, there are seminars, there are podcasts. You know, there are there is so much around that opens this area up for discussion. I certainly don't believe that it's helpful to say, Step one, step two, step three, step four, this is the template. Uh, what I think the most important thing where it starts off with opening up that discussion and opening up that discussion to several different and competing voices and uh, negotiating and navigating your way through those competing discussions and actually being open to what other people from the other side of the world are saying about 
about things about this subject um, it's interesting to me that we can always look at loads of different starting points for movements etc but I like the fact that the decolonizing higher education movement which I think has taken root certainly in the UK starts in South Africa and 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 starts with a student throwing thesis at the statue of of Cecil Rhodes um, and it, it feels good that there is that movement that starts in that place rather than that place being the follow-up or or, or it starts uh, in the UK. I, I, I hope that, that answers what, what you're asking me. Yeah, so you really appreciate the combination of different perspectives and to open up the university for those perspectives? I, 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 absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's easy and I don't think it's straightforward. But I think we have to accept that there are different epistemologies. And I think we have to see and embrace and understand what they are and work out how we how they coexist alongside uh, each other. And I don't for one moment think this is a straightforward thing because there are contradictions. There are absolute dramatic contradictions. But I also know that the time when we could feel secure in the superiority of Western traditions has gone, that that moment no longer exists. And the kind of questions um, that we begin to ask about the situatedness of uh, Western knowledge traditions completely undermines them, um, completely you know, questions them and makes their positionality absolutely clear it's it's writ large it's inescapable the idea that anybody can speak from a point of view of neutrality it it, it doesn't hold anymore maybe you've been able to do that for the last you know few centuries but the game's up we now know that you are positioned you've got a race you've got a gender you've got a class and those things influence what and how you see the world mm-hmm. When they're talking about colonization of the curriculum, people often talk about the classical works or canon, but do you think that this imbalance is also found more in the contemporary scholars? I, 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 yes, I mean, I, 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 I think while there is um, a lot of talk about decolonizing the curriculum, I don't think the actuality the activity of discolonizing the curriculum is as dramatic as the talk would imply. And again, I, I'm, I'm thinking about what has happened in the UK. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that I can find the actual, the full detail of it. But for example, there was um, a, a newspaper, the Guardian newspaper, did a freedom of information uh, request to find out uh, which universities um, were actually reforming their curriculum to confront the harmful legacy of colonialism. Uh, and the Freedom of Information request was sent to all the universities, and that out of 128 institutions, only 28 had said that they were actually doing something. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a, you know, a shamefully 
small number. So although there is all this discussion, all this chatter, if you if you you know read the front newspaper, which you know for your health, I wouldn't recommend you do it. But if you read the uh, the front page of some of the newspapers that we have in the UK, you would feel that the entire uh, HE sector is being ground to dust by these radicals who are no platforming common sense scholars who just want to tell the truths that we've all known for centuries are truths and who are attacking and demolishing everything. But when you look at really what's happening, it's very mild, it's very minor, and it's not really having a dramatic impact across the sector. So I think that there's you know, a lot of work to do, legitimately a lot of work to do. Yeah, that, that's what I think. Mm. But, you know, you know, there's a lot more um, noise than there is activity. Yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it perhaps says that campaigners have been quite successful in making sure that this is quite a prominent um, agenda item, quite a, a prominent discussion. Um, but there is a mismatch between the headline and the actual mm-hmm. uh, activity. So there's still, uh, you know, a lot of very legitimate work to do. And I think that if you go to, I mean, I can think about my academic career and I think that, you know, I can think of one reading list in my academic career that I wouldn't even say was decolonised. I would say included black writers and it was quite a dramatic event, you know. Yeah. So, it, you know, we're not we're not nearly there yet, but some people will complain. Of course, they will, because they, you know, it's in their interest. They prefer the idea of things being as they are. As a student yourself, have you been confronted with colonial knowledge structures? Have you some kind of impacts from the curriculum on you? Um, yeah, I mean, my student days are, you know, a long time gone now um though of course you know i I, i'm part of education so i i can still recall them um and i i i would say that if you uh have that interest in understanding these um kind of considerations you really do have to seek it out it's not presented to you in the way that other discussions might be presented uh to you And when it is presented to you, it's presented as a discrete subject. Um, So one of the things that interests me or one of the curiosities I have is we can look at colonialism, we can look at racism, we can look at um, equity, social justice as discrete subjects, or we can look at other subjects and ask, well, what are the decolonial implications of this? Where are the international voices which are speaking to this subject? And it's um, the latter position that I find perhaps the more interesting. So I, I, I guess the way I usually phrase it is I prefer to, to, to speak from a position. So from a position of diversity, of you know, being my race, my gender, my social class, rather than simply about it. Um, I don't necessarily want to spend all of my time talking about race and gender, but I do want to speak as somebody who is racialized and somebody who has a gender, but who speaks about all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have you experienced tensions with people of your work environment when you are talking about decolonization? Like you already talked about the media and, and the society as a whole. 
But do you have like negative experience in your own work environment when you're all talking about decolonization? Well, I, I, I would say that in some ways I'm very fortunate that I work for a university that has that has at its roots a fundamental uh, commitment to equity and social justice. And that is quite an explicit commitment that really, you know, like the, 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 the writing through a stick of rock runs all the way through everything. So it doesn't just come from the top and it doesn't just come from the bottom, but people talk about it all the time. But having said that, it's also an institution that has its own discriminations. that I wouldn't say that it's a, it's a, it's a haven of equity where there are no, you know, there is still a black awarding gap at this university which gives an indication of some trouble. Um, and I've certainly been in meetings where people have talked about equity, access or whatever, and somebody will say, oh, but what about white men? What, what about white men? You know, what about us? <laughs> and um, so that in itself is mm -hmm. an indication that, uh, you know, th 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 there is a long way to go and we continue to fight we continue to struggle we continue to assert ourselves and we continue to make sure that we have the arguments that we need really clearly articulated and the evidence that we need really clearly articulated when somebody is just starting colonizing their own curriculum which issues should they really consider okay well i would certainly consider um looking and seeking out diverse voices and texts and epistemologies and working out when and how they can come into the curriculum. And I don't mean just one or two, but a real, you know, so that it is that kind of really rich space where there are a whole world full of perspectives that are brought to bear. And I'm thinking about reading lists and I'm thinking about the, 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 the subject matter. That would be one of the things I think is, is a quick, easy win. And recognizing that you may well have to really seek them out because they may not be obvious. Um, they may not be easily obtainable at your fingertips. But who are those different writers that you could call upon? and those different discourses and ideas and epistemologies that you call upon. I would be interested in thinking the extent to which issues around decolonization and, you know, its afterlives can be made an explicit subject within the curriculum. And, and, and is it possible to find space for that? But I'd also be interested in putting, as people would say, you know, the, the, the classical, the canonical writers in their place. So when was this person writing? From what position were they writing? And um, looking more broadly at the kinds of things that they might have said um, that would make somebody sit up and listen. Um, for me, uh, one of the examples that I would find of that would be the uh, German philosopher um, Hannah Arendt, who I've had a great deal of interest in over the past few years, um, and recently started looking at her views 
around desegregating schools in um, in in the states in the 1960s. I've been quite shocked by the stance that she took towards that. And I think within a decolonized curriculum, it's easy to sort of hold these people up as heroes and heroines and then completely forget that they've got this other set of things that they have said, which are deeply problematic. And I think a decolonized curriculum doesn't allow them to get off the hook. It doesn't mean that we're not going to talk about them, but it does mean that when we do talk about them, we talk about them in in the round. We say, well, this is also part of what this person has said. And does that influence how you understand their other uh, outputs? So, yes, I think putting the canon in its place, giving it a race, giving it a class, giving it a gender, given uh, their wider context of things which they might have said about other things. I think seeking out and actively pursuing and amplifying broader voices, epistemologies, researchers that can speak to and connect to your standard curriculum, your colonised curriculum, if you like, and um, finding opportunities for those subjects to uh, around colonialism and its afterlives to be an explicit subject within your curriculum. So those, those would be three points. And I realise those three things are huge. Each one of them is huge. And it's easy to say just this, 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 this and this, but they're huge. And each of them is almost a project in and of itself. Um, and I, I, I make no apology for that at, at, at all. I, I think always the starting point is making sure that you create within your professional context a space to be talking about these things. So it's really, like you said, a lot of work. Do you think, of, when do you think we can speak of a decolonized curriculum? Well, I, I like the idea of thinking of a, 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 a curriculum as a, uh, or a decolonized curriculum as, as, as a view, as a, as a process rather than uh, a, a product and an and outcome. And so I, I, I think that I would say that um, I, I don't know that I um, would feel in favour of a, a, a destination that's clearly defined, but I do see these as being ongoing processes. Perhaps as one set of voices get amplified, there are other uh, voices which are still unheard that you so it's a matter of continually seeking out and placing value on those uh, indigenous and unheard voices that that's what it does it does that as a process does there come a moment when we say equity is there equity is you know we've, we've done it we've sorted it the the, the 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 truth is i think that the idea of uh, for example reparations is such a dramatic idea. I think if the world had got to a point where those reparations are complete, we won't need to ask that question because we will surely recognise it because it will be so dramatically different to where we are at the moment. I, I don't think that we could ever mistake it. Um, but I think that I think at, from this stage, this is just a matter of making sure that this activity this process, this set of commitments are perpetually on an agenda and perpetually a focus for uh, activity 
um, there isn't a, a defining endpoint. How did you compose your educa educational work with an institutional decolonization in mind? That's that's really interesting because, of course, I I, I don't know that I necessarily feel that I'm uh, an exemplar uh, of, of 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 anything, um, and you know I am uh, somewhere along this journey. Uh, of decolonization, and of course, I suppose I am more fortunate in as much as I'm working with with doctoral students, and so there is less of a fixed curriculum in that sense, and there is much more of an opportunity to and much more freedom to bring in these uh, epistemologies and for that to be accepted as as part of what we do. If anything, I would say within my own writing. I become much more uh, interested in being explicit, not just about my own epistemologies or my own positionality, but actually about drawing much more on um, African, uh, Caribbean uh, and Black writers and bringing in those concepts into the things that I'm talking about. Um, as I said before, I insist that I don't have to be talking about race all the time. I can talk about leadership. I can talk about uh, ethics. I can talk about anything. And I want to talk about anything. But I want to be explicit by talking about it as somebody who's black and somebody who's female and bringing in that perspective and working out what that perspective means. And what do you think that other lecturers also need to keep in mind while they are composing an anti-colonial syllabus? I, I, I think they need to, 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 to continually bear in mind that there are black writers writing about these things. There are Asian writers, there are women writers, and sometimes they say things which are uh, at odds with mainstream, orthodox, even what you might call authoritative voices. And it's not always easy uh, to in incorporate and include those voices, but it's it's quite important uh, to do so. And I think it's also important to think about what um, the pedagogic relations are that exist within uh, your programmes and to see how those are, 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 are explicitly, you know, explored and understood and, and, and challenged. Okay, when talking about colonial academic knowledge, the yeah. humanities and social and politics science are what come to mind first. Yet these colonial knowledge structures are pretty much in every domain in uh, academia. Could you give any advice for people in other domains where it's maybe not as usual to think about uh, these things? Yeah, I, all I can say is that I, th I think it is uh, extraordinarily uh, challenging. Um, I know as part of the the roads must fall, you know, there was always a science must fall uh, movement that went alongside it. And um, I, I appreciate that scientists more than anybody else have that absolute faith in a, a singular version of what is and what isn't true. And I have, you know, I, I, I can appreciate that, you know, how how troubling it is to challenge that. 
on the other hand, and I can't do this because I'm not a scientist. Um, on the other hand, I I also know that there are um, indigenous ways of thinking and indigenous knowledges which seem to come to conclusions which you know are way beyond what uh, somebody might imagine to be the case when you are dismissive of them um and so i i i think it's always a matter of exploring fully what those different knowledge structures are and how they connect or disconnect how they challenge how they enhance how they extend uh, or how they act as the basis for the uh, orthodox uh, or, or classical or canonical um, scientific knowledges that you have. I'm not a scientist, so I don't, I wouldn't even begin to uh, outline those. It's just, uh, I also listen to podcasts and I've listened to some extraordinary uh, discussions uh, around this in that field of science. So I know that they are there. And I, th- I, th- I think that you can't say, oh, well, science, it's true, it's this, it's that, and there is no other discussion, because I would say there absolutely is that discussion, and it's worth pursuing. And it's interesting. It's true. Can you give advice to lecturers how they can create a safe learning space uh, for students through their own teaching? Yes. Yes. I mean, it, I, 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 part of what I want to say is, As we know with learning, when you are pushed outside of your comfort zone, it's uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's, it is scary and it is challenging. But we also know with learning that if you're not pushing beyond to the complete edge of what you know and what your, you know, your, your, your comfort zone, then you're not really learning anything. So, I th- I think if we're talking about safe spaces, I I, I suppose I'm I'm you know more uh, animated by how we create engaging spaces and how we create stimulating and challenging spaces, recognizing that sometimes when you look at these issues, it's not always comfortable and it's not always easy, and you know for some people, learning about the true history of empire is going to be an enormous threat to them. And maybe how can you, you create like a safe space while stimulating inclusion? Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, I mean, I I, I suppose it, you know, comes down to what kind of safety you're seeking. Perhaps that's the answer. So what I think I mean is that an at an interpersonal level you can always be comfortable I mean, you, sorry you can always be polite you know you can always be reassuring you can always be nice you know to people and you can always um, support them in uh, managing risk and um, and managing a, a, a fundamental challenge to who they are and how they see the world If by safe you mean not doing that, then I think that we're not doing students any favors. So I, 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 I guess it's it's a matter of how do you uh, enable people to confront, you know, the threat of a decolonizing agenda 
perhaps is in my mind how I, how I would see it. Ultimately, if you're threatened by equity and you're threatened by social justice, I'm not sure that I have any advice, any advice <laughs> for you, um, apart from, you know, what we do know. And, you know, again, there's there's research out there that would say it, that in equitable societies, actually, we all benefit. All of us benefit. Everybody. Uh, it's to all our interest to have uh, an equitable society. So how can you protect like the the learning process of, of people who actually believe in it while also keep stimulating other students who don't believe in decolonization? Yeah. The, the, can the, you the do reason, that? There isn't an easy uh, reconciliation. There, there, there really, really isn't. And I think it's a matter of how do you teach controversial subjects? Uh, you know, pr- perhaps it starts off with empathy. Um, how do you uh, embed empathy into your teaching? I think there are discussions, aren't there, around um, about pre- appreciative inquiry, where people simply just learn to sit and listen to the other person and the other person's perspective and the impact that it, it, it has on them. Um, and you, you know, you, 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 you know, there. I suppose I keep coming down to the fact that there is continually going to be risk. So we don't go out of our way. We don't want to um, completely alienate uh, people and to switch them off and to mean that they walk away and they don't want to listen. On the other hand, I don't think it's fair to ask people to constantly respond to fragility around these issues if it means that the things that need to be said don't get said you know i i i'm reminded because it's come up in news stories here that our former 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 prime minister david cameron his family were slave owners when slave slavery was abolished the slaves weren't paid compensation but the slave owners were and his family have only just had the compensation that they were paid for the loss of slaves. That that debt has only just finished being completed um, in, in terms of the money they were given. It's, that debt has only just been paid off. So when we think about, um, you know, reparations or when we think about this discussion, whose needs do I prioritise? I have to accept that for some people it's going to be an unsafe environment and I'm desperately sorry about that but if you can get over if you can get over that difficulty and meet us on the other side I promise you'll you'll be much much happier and much safer and you know it will be good for all of us I promise you. What current trends do you notice regarding decolonization of the curriculum yourself and how do you feel about them? I think that um, I think it's good that this is on an agenda and I think it's good that it's on so many agendas. And I think I find that quite heartening because I think just having the space to talk about it is a really positive thing. And I think that once some subjects get eared, they don't you don't go back. They don't get uneared. And I recognize that, you know, there is, as we know, a cultural wars that surrounds the university And I know that there will be a right wing backlash uh, with this and we're waiting and we expect it. But nonetheless, these ideas are out there. They're being written about, they're being talked about and they've been published and they're not going anywhere, whether we 
you know, whatever we think about them. What I think is that institutions are quite good at incorporating uh, and neutralising uh, this dissent. So we find that decolonising the curriculum is translated and simplified into all sorts of less challenging, less threatening, if you like, agendas. So people start talking about the awarded gap between uh, black students and other students and say, well, that's decolonization. Or they start talking about inclusion. I think, well, that's decolonization. And of course, it's not. I don't think, you know, the good is the enemy of the excellent. So I don't think it's bad to talk about those things. I just don't think that they're anywhere near uh, mm-hmm. deep or far or profound enough. Uh, but I think that that's, I think the main danger is that the agenda gets neutralized, compromised, softened until it's almost not very challenging to anybody, but it allows somebody to say that something is being done. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned like a difference between decolonization and like inclusion or uh, diversity. Could you explain a bit more what the exact difference is between those? Okay. Um, I, I, I suppose that I would say that if we're talking about decolonization, we are explicit in recognizing the impact of empire and its afterlives on both geopolitics on an international scale, uh, but also in the lives and experiences um, of people of color across the world, on diasporas, on our current status in, in, in these places and in these, in these countries. I think inclusion is is a worthwhile agenda, but it picks up on all sorts of things, uh, from race to disability to gender to all sorts of things. Everything is just thrown in there and we address them. And it's I, I, perhaps, I guess, premise on making people feel part of things. Well, you can make people feel part of things without necessarily challenging in any fundamental way the broader structural things which preclude and exclude them so that that is what I understand as being the difference so one is a kind of um, a a very sort of liberal approach Uh, we make some concessions but we leave the ultimate structures that lead to discrimination intact we don't really question those we just it's it's almost you know if we have a school and we say oh we've got one or two black teachers here then that's fine. But if those black teachers are operating within a structure that still manages to discriminate, it, it, it doesn't really do anything. And it puts, you know, it puts an awful lot of work on them, doesn't it? They almost become the ones who are responsible for the dismantling, uh, which is not, which is not quite, quite reasonable. Mm-hmm. And how do you see the future of academia regarding anti-colonial curriculum? And what hopes do you have for it? Oh, that's a nice question. Um, I, 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 you know, I am a real believer that once, once people are thinking, talking, writing, creating spaces within the academy to explore these issues, there will be a backlash, but we, but we won't go back. And that attitudes are changing and have changed. And expectations are changing and have changed and will continue to change. And it might well be very slow. It might be, you know, decades. 
actually, we might not ever get to that destination point. But I do say that once that process is in place, that process will, um, in my view, will will continue. You know, you know, I, I say that mindful of you know what governments can do to higher education and how much a simple policy change can send things back decades. Um, not least of all, again in the UK, the introduction of student fees and how much that has done to really change the character of many universities and the kind of radicalism that you might have seen at, at one stage, you don't necessarily see uh, anymore. But having said that, I think that once, you know, once these books are written, once these presentations are made, once these this research is undertaken, that information is there, it's understood, and people will continually push, you know, in a particular direction to ensure that these ideas are um, allowed to take to take root and allowed to to shape. Sometimes it might might mean that you leave the university and that there are other ways that you can push for certain agendas and certain commitments. But I, I suppose overall, I, 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 you know, maybe it's just a dis- disposition, but overall, I think there is scope for optimism. And optimism is is a necessity. In this episode, Dr. Azuma Dennis called for decolonizing the curriculum by decolonizing the content of the curriculum, as well as by making decolonization a legitimate subject within the curriculum. So according to her, the positioning and the contextualization of authors, texts, um, but also lecturers forms an important step in the decolonization of the curriculum. She also highlighted the importance of integrating diverse voices, subjects, um, as well as epistemologies, whilst keeping the power structures behind education in mind. And even though there is a lot of work to do still on decolonization, um, Dr. Dennis has a positive outlook on the future. And that is because she believes once decolonizing processes are put into motion, they cannot be erased. Thank you, Dr. Dennis, for making time to come and share your knowledge with us. And thank you guys for listening to our very first podcast. We are super excited to have you here. Um, We also encourage you to listen to the second part of this episode um, on decolonizing the curriculum. In that segment, we will be applying the advice of Dr. Dennis to the courses of a lecture of Ghent University. Um, Hopefully we taught you something, hopefully you got inspired, and we would love to see you back next time.